Good morning, guys. We are continuing on in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, <clears throat> verses 1 to 23. And the encouraging title is Preparing for Persecution. So, <laughs> yeah, so you guys are happy about that, huh? <laughs> man, but the truth is, man, the truth is many of us have traveled through trials that were so intense and difficult that we thought we may not make it through. Right? Trials can be confusing, frustrating. They can make us feel lost. And I think about when my family went, we went to this huge maze a couple of years back in Panama City Beach, this, this maze you walk through. And there were these checkpoints within the maze that you had to get to, and there were clues for the next step. And at a few points during the hour we were navigating, it took about an hour, an hour and a half to navigate. It was a big maze. We'd navigate through this. Felt like we were trapped and, and we would never get out. Outwardly, I was acting, of course, confident and manly for my girls, you know, but, but inwardly, I lacked faith. I thought eventually, we're going to probably have to take one of these emergency exits that are throughout the maze, right? But it just felt like we were going in circles, backtracking, backtracking or, or not progressing. And I felt like a mouse in a running wheel or a human on a treadmill. It, it's like there's movement, there's momentum, but no forward motion. And this is how it feels at times when, when we're facing intense hardships and we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. In the phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel, I kind of like the history of phrases, but it comes from the idea of being, again, in a, in a pitch black tunnel and suddenly seeing your way out to a beautiful destination. The comment, the phrase dates back to about the 1880s. It was popularized by uh, President John F. Kennedy in the 1960s, referring to the Vietnam War. But in the valley, it's difficult to see the light, to see the end of the road, to see a way out. Yet as we're led by the Lord, He illuminates our path, He leads our lives, and gives us strength through the trials. You know, John Newton, he was a slave ship owner, pretty bad guy. He faced this severe storm out in the ocean where he cried out to God. And thinking they were all going to sink and die, John Newton told God, he said, if we survive this storm, I will change my ways. I will give my whole life, whole rest of my life to you. Well, they survived the storm, and he repented. He trusted in Christ. He stopped being a slave ship owner. He became an abolitionist, and he wrote many hymns. One of the hymns he wrote was named Amazing Grace. Probably have heard of it, right? Amazing Grace. He, he wrote this, though. John Newton wrote this about faith and the purpose of trials. He wrote, faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful dispensation is under the direction of his Lord, that chastisements are a token of his love, that the season, the measure, and the continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good, and that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his need. See, trials lead to producing in us faith that is stronger, more resilient, and completely established. There's a, there actually are positive, we know this as believers, there are positive purposes for trials. And this is the case as we look to the one who went through the most intense and painful trials in all of history. Jesus went through pain that we could not even imagine. And listen to what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount way before this point. In Matthew 5, 10 to 13, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus was teaching his followers what to expect as they were loyal to the Lord, but at the same time, Jesus would face these very lessons he was teaching. So, let's pray and then we'll get into the scriptures this morning, you guys. Well, again, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As your word is open, we pray that our hearts and our minds are open, Lord, to, that we would integrate and take in the word into our hearts, Lord, that we not only know these words and these truths, Lord, but we'd be able to live them out. We just pray that you'd encourage us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know many of you just are excited to study Revelation when we finish the Gospel of Luke, right? Some of you are like, when are we starting that? Which is great, which is great. But please don't let that anticipation take you away from what we're looking at in these last three chapters of Luke. We can't miss this. I mean, this is the time where Jesus was betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified, and rose again. These moments we're, we're going to look at should be sobering, powerful, in that we know that Jesus went through all of this for those who would repent and trust in him. These are powerful chapters, right? We don't want to be so future-focused, we won't be able to soak in what the Lord has for us in these days, right? That Jesus, what he faced physically on the earth. So, Jesus, he steadfastly, in Luke 9.51, it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus knew what events would occur. None of what we look at when it comes to the week leading up to Jesus' death was an accident, right? These were moments appointed by God, the Father, and followed through by Jesus, the Son. So verse 1, Luke 22 says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so when he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So number one, the first thing we say is the beginning of betrayal. Now, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles were the three most important feasts on the Jewish calendar. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread refers to the period beginning Passover and extending seven more days, during which no leavened bread was eaten. Now, the Jews had removed all leaven, which was yeast, from their houses, just like they had to do in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, originally. They did this as a reminder that their ancestors had to leave Egypt quickly, in haste that they had to eat unleavened bread, there was no time to wait for it to rise. And what's interesting is that Jesus had warned the disciples of the hypocrisy or leaven of the religious leaders. And this is the moment where the religious leader, leaders would finally get their chance to capture and kill Jesus. The Passover was held on the 14th month of Nisan, the first month of the uh, Jewish year, and all the Jewish men were expected to go to Jerusalem every year to celebrate, as seen in Deuteronomy 16.16. The Feast of Passover really commemorated the deliverance uh, of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, in Egypt. It was a time for remembering and rejoicing. You can reference Exodus 11 and 12 for that. One, uh, One bishop from England, his name was Jeremy Taylor, he was... He was called, back in the day, the Shakespeare of the divine, right? But he said, It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. (laughs) Knowing our God has delivered us and continues to lead us, 
protect us, helps us, encourage our hearts. It keeps us, to move, keeps us moving forward in the faith. You know, during this time of Passover, crowds of expectant pilgrims would gather into Jerusalem, which is always, it, always, it made the Romans nervous about possible uprisings. And this really explains why King Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, they were in Jerusalem at this time instead of in uh, Tiberias and Caesarea. They wanted to make sure that that peace was held in the city. See, the chief priests, the scribes, they wanted to kill Jesus, but they also feared the Jews in the city. And, and this is why they were constantly plotting and planning, having board meetings, whatever, to figure out how to get rid of what they perceived as a so-called savior. Even though we know he was and is the Savior, the Messiah. And think about the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and this was a huge thing. Jesus rebuked them for this. They cleansed their homes, but they didn't cleanse their hearts. They cleansed their homes, but they didn't cleanse their hearts. It was all about the outward, for show. It was what people saw. Their hearts were far from God. See, the last thing that the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted was a messianic uprising in Passover season. So in verse 3, John 13, 27 tells us that Satan entered Judas and Jesus handed him bread during the Passover meal. So Judas, as far as recorded in Scripture, was never a true believer in Christ. Granted, he may have believed who he was, but there was never a trusting in Christ for salvation recorded in Scripture. Because the Bible is clear that even the demons believe. It doesn't mean that they're born again. You know, we know clearly from the Gospel of John, the sins of Judas had never been cleansed by the Lord, and he never believed or received eternal life. What it, this shows us is, is how close a person can get to Jesus without actually being saved. Every Wednesday and Sunday, I send all my notes to the sound team, right? And uh, I'm just thinking about this. They faithfully put them in. It's a big old thing of text notes, right? And I send it to them to, to go on YouTube and Facebook and all that. And up here. And about a month or two ago, I accidentally put the wrong gospel on the top, right, of the first page. I wrote Matthew instead of Luke. And so I, I didn't know until afterwards, but they actually had all the verses from Matthew through the whole thing, a big old long text of them, right? And uh, so they had to the whole time scramble and try to fix my mistake. All I did was put the wrong gospel. I thought, oh, no big deal. It's just it says Matthew instead of Luke. But it was all verses from Matthew. And so it was, it was this one wrong name put on the top of the page, messed up the, the whole rest of the verses, and they were scrambling to catch up, and I feel so bad. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying sorry from the pulpit. But, um, but, the, but the, the notes were so close. They were almost right, you know, but uh, one little thing messed, messed it all up so close. And that's the thing I was thinking about. People get so close to Jesus. They look, they act, they even talk like Christians, and yet they don't even know him. They know about him, but they don't know him. They can know all about Jesus, yet not trust him for salvation. Peter denied Jesus because it says, you remember what it says? Peter followed Jesus from afar. Followed him from afar. And at that point, he believed. But there was separation between him and Jesus. When there's a huge gap between you and the Lord, there's room for fear and for sin and for all kinds of ungodliness to fill that gap. Jesus never trusted, you know, or Judas, sorry, Judas never trusted in Christ and so was engulfed in guilt and he eventually hung himself, we know from the book of Acts. 
And we know that the Gospel of Matthew, that the chief priests gave Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Now, now this amount is actually was the Old Testament amount that one would use to buy a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Which is interesting because Jesus you know, was on the earth as a servant of all. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. During Passover, priests would actually, they would carry these small bags of money tied to their, to their belt so they could buy lambs to be used for sacrifices. So it's very likely that these chief priests used their money, which was for lambs, to betray Jesus, the perfect and unblemished Lamb of God. In John 1.29, it actually says, the next day, John, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, what, G- what Judas did actually pleased the ones who Jesus rebuked for being far from God and hypocritical. What Judas's actions show us as well was that when, when one cooperates with Satan, they pay for it. For Judas ended up destroying himself. Satan is a liar, he's a destroyer, and he reproduces himself, or he reproduced himself in the life of Judas. There's all kinds of speculation and concerning like why Judas would betray Jesus. Some think since he was the only Judean of the disciples, all the rest were Galilean, that he was bitter. Uh, Others think Judas expected Jesus to overthrow the Romans rather than surrender himself to them, so he was mad and betrayed Jesus. Most think Judas was greedy for money, a swindler, and really a good actor, because even the disciples in the upper room, they didn't know that Judas was the one who would betray Jesus. When Jesus brought up, they looked at each other like, who is it? Until Judas betrayed him. So we see the beginning of betrayal. Now, you guys, we see the preparation for Passover. Verse 7 to 13, it says, and then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And so they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and they found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. I love the picture here, because Passover was celebrated by families, and Jesus celebrated it with his disciples, meaning Jesus considered those who follow him family. You go through the New Testament from Acts on, and you see that the church is exactly that. It's a family, not a social club, not a place to network, not a place to judge and compare, not a place of perfect people, not a platform of pride, it's a family. You know, what's notable is that Jesus would share this meal with his disciples even when the disciples at this point were not very spiritual. And I say that because Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter denied Jesus, Thomas doubted Jesus. Yet Jesus treated them all as family. I'm so thankful that God chooses faulty people that are filled with faith to follow him and be used by him. So from his actions, Jesus knew there was a plot to take him out, hence the secrecy, the upper room meeting. At this point, only Peter and John, they're the only ones who knew where the feast would be. So in verse 10 to 12, Peter and John had to look out for a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, culturally, when when men would not be seen carrying pitchers of water, only women did that in the first century in the Middle East. So a man carrying water would stand out. 
to where Peter and John would see this man and find him easily. Like, oh, that's definitely the guy. He's the only one doing that. And God really does make things clear for us, doesn't he? You know, research suggests that uh, your vision might peak at certain times in the day. There's some, a lot of studies. A study from neuroscientists at the University in Frankfurt, it indicated at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., they're the prime times for vision, the best eyesight. And eyesight is at its worst at 2 p.m. It's like when the Lord is first calling us to something, it may, it may be like our vision at 2 p.m. It may be blurry, you know, a lull in the day. You know, it's like that midday lull. Get another cup of coffee or have some food or whatever. But the more we follow him, the more we pursue what he's calling us to, the clearer our vision becomes. And some people are stuck trying to see at 2 p.m. because they're idle when God says to get up and get going. But this man, this man they would locate carrying the water, he was also thought to be a follower of Jesus. And he made his home available to Jesus and these men for his last Passover. And remember when Jesus was born, there was no room for him in the inn. There's a contrast here. For there's a difference between a guest room and an upper room. The guest room was, a, was small, unfurnished. The upper room was larger, furnished, and much nicer. Peter and John asked for the guest room, but the man who lent the house to Jesus and his followers lent them a better space, the upper room. Jesus does, you know, Jesus does, he deserves all our honor, our reverence, the best we can give him. So Peter and John, they would purchase an approved lamb, they would take it to the temple to be slain, take it to the other, you know, take it and the other elements of the house where they'd meet, and then they would roast the lamb. And the table would have on it wine, unleavened bread, paste of bitter herbs that reminded the Jews of the long and bitter bondage that they had in Egypt. So everything, verse 13, makes it clear, everything was as Jesus said. Whatever Jesus said, you'll find it to be true. Whatever God says to you, it's true. He doesn't break his promises. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. It's against his nature. And there are no exceptions. So now we see you guys, verse 14 to 20, the upper room and the new covenant. Verse 14 says, when the hour had come, he sat down, Jesus sat down, and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise he said, I'm sorry, likewise he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus was telling the disciples the reason they were meeting in the upper room now. He was essentially saying goodbye. Yet this wasn't the end. This was really just the beginning. Jesus instituted, he was instituting the ordinance of communion and remember, Passover commemorated the exodus of, of Israel from Egypt centuries before. But Jesus would accomplish a greater exodus on the cross of Calvary. He would purchase redemption from sin for a whole world full of lost sinners. And think about what Jesus used. He used bread and wine. Bread is grain that has been ground up and baked in an oven. Jesus was, in a sense, ground up by the religious establishment and was, again, in a sense, baked in the oven of adversity and absorbed the fire of hell for you and for me. Wine and grapes, you know, wine are grapes that have been crushed, right? 
You know, when the soldier, remember when the soldier thrust that spear into Jesus' side while he was on the cross, blood and water flowed out, it indicated that he had died on the cross. Physiologically, Jesus died from a burst or a crushed heart. After being ground, individual grains are brought together into a single loaf. After being crushed, individual grapes lose their identity and become one. So too, when we take communion, not only are we, in a sense, becoming one with Christ, reflecting upon his death, we also come, become one with our brothers and sisters as we eat of the same loaf and drink of the same cup. And that's the thing. Communion has really like a threefold aspect. Number one, it looks back in faith as it remembers the cross. Number two, it looks ahead in hope as it waits for the day we will eat with the Lord in his kingdom. And number three, it looks around the world as all who trust in Christ observe communion in remembrance of what Jesus did. So this act in the upper room also, it was to let the disciples know that he would not drink the fruit of the vine until his millennial reign. So the Passover ended in verse 18, verse 19 and 20, we have observance of communion. Jesus gave them bread, a symbol of his body, which would be hung on the cross of Calvary. The cup spoke of his blood, which would be shed on the cross. This is the new covenant. And again, the new covenant, which was it's all about Jesus' blood. His sacrifice was necessary to usher in the new covenant. Now I was looking at it, and there, there are between 200 and 250 dead bodies along the climbing path to Mount Everest. Many people have tried and failed, yet still every year about 800 climbers every year attempt to reach the top. And on the trail, a lot of them have to walk over dead bodies of people who didn't make it. It's not easy. It's been described actually as torturous. Jesus saw beyond suffering, though. We all suffer. We're all going to go through difficulties, trials, pain, hardship. But Jesus saw beyond suffering to the glory. And so should we. Jesus saw beyond the cross to the crown. There's a future and a hope for those who trust in Christ for salvation. Jesus went through agony because he, he knew what was at the top of it all, <laughs> if you will. Forgiveness, salvation for lost sinners. He, he, you know, Jesus clued those who followed him in on what was about to happen and what really what it meant. I would just say, let us never forget what Jesus has done for everyone who trusts in him for salvation. He suffered in pain. He died in agony. He was tortured and then killed for you. To take your sin upon that cross, it's called expiation, so that eternal life with him is possible, so that you and I could be saved and actually forgiven. It's <laughs> amazing. So the last few verses, guys, verse 21 to 23, it says, Jesus says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began, the disciples, right, the apostles, they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. So number four is betrayer beware. So before this point, Jesus hinted that there was a traitor among them. But here, he openly speaks about the traitor in their midst as they're all together. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, even Judas' feet. So as Jesus pointed out that there was a traitor among them, he was doing this so Judas had the opportunity to come clean. And the disciples were puzzled about what or who Jesus was talking about. Like, who is it, me? Is it you? Who is it? 
I knew you, I knew you said some weird things the other day. Maybe it's you. Like, they didn't know, which means they didn't, they didn't know the real character or, or heart of Judas, even though he walked with him for years. And again, it goes to show us that people can be so close to Jesus and even look like a saved person, yet not be. It shows us that those who we think are the most Christian may have everyone fooled. For there may be the most unsaved person we know. We, we just, you know what I'm saying? We don't know. Much about Judas remains a mystery to us. But what he shows us is that he was so close to Jesus. He heard him. He served him. He walked with him. He kept the money like he was a treasure. And then he betrayed him. And after Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas says, Judas actually says in Matthew 27, 4, that he betrayed innocent blood. Even Judas declared Jesus innocent. And he followed him close for that whole three-and-a-half-year ministry, so he would know. Jesus was the perfect lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And that's the thing. It's, it's a good reminder, you guys, that all the pain he faced had a purpose. Salvation. Forgiveness for those who would truly, genuinely trust in him. May we trust in our Savior, look to him, and walk with him daily. Right? We trust him for salvation, and then we trust him on a daily basis. It's one thing, uh, by faith, uh, by grace through faith, we believe, right? We trust him for salvation. All who call upon the name of the Lord are saved, Romans 10, 8 through 10. But then there's also, as, as believers, there's a daily trust. Because it doesn't mean just because we're saved, all our problems go away. Sometimes they get worse because now we're in a spiritual battle. Now the enemy's like, oh, you think you're saved? Kind of like Job. Oh, you think you're faithful? We'll see about that. And so daily we trust him, you guys. If we start to take the reins, take the wheel ourselves and control it all, we're going to crash and burn. We're going to destroy ourselves. We need to look to the Lord. Get in the back seat. Give him the keys and just sit there quietly until he says, get up and get going. Like following him, trusting in him, he knows the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Amen?